It's as easy as jumping out of a plane. It's the Your Life Lived Well podcast with Dr. Kevin Payne. Welcome back. You know, it's no secret that I like jumping out of perfectly good airplanes. A lot. And this may seem like a weird topic for a podcast that has to do with chronic illness, but it's really crucial to my story, and I'm going to talk about a couple of things that are going to be important to how you live with your chronic illness. So we're going to talk about my story and jumping out of airplanes and why it matters to me, but more importantly, we're going to talk about how you hang on to your dreams and how you deal with fear. So, <laughs> let's go all the way back. And, and when I was a little kid, you know, I'm a child of the Apollo era, so I was fascinated with all things space and all things up in the air. And I was one of those little kids who liked to climb everything and jump off of it. And I was, I was fascinated with flight. I thought this was just the coolest thing in the world. I would, I would lay out in the grass and, and watch the birds. Uh, you know, I was, I was fascinated with superheroes flying around. And, and you know, it's, it's human flight is, is a big topic in popular culture. You know, we, we, we see those cultural tropes all the time. It goes all the way back to the story of Daedalus and Icarus, right? Uh, you know, Daedalus was, was the guy who invented the, the uh, maze, the labyrinth that held the Minotaur of Crete, and his son was Icarus, and they were held captive. And so Daedalus, being the savvy inventor that he was, invented wings for them to fly away from the island. And Icarus, in his youthful boldness, flew too close to the sun, and the, and the, the wax on the wings melted, and he plummeted to his death. So, uh, you know, th that goes all the way back to ancient Greek mythology, and, and we've been living with these stories, you know, all the time. And I was a kid, and, and I loved this idea. So one day when I was, was still pretty little, I was still in grade school, and I was visiting my grandmother for a week or two in the summer, and I noticed that there was an ad for an air show at one of these little country airports uh, around, and, and so I said, hey, let's go. So we went to the air show, and, you know, there were some planes, and there was a carnival atmosphere, and everybody was having a good time. And then along about the middle part of the day, a little Cessna cruised over the airfield, and there was a man hanging from the strut of the airplane. And he let go, and the crowd gasped. <gasps> and pretty quickly, within a few seconds, a parachute opened. But 
remember, this is the 70s. So the Ram Air parachute, the, the modern rectangular parachute that we think about, those were pretty new at that time. So I'd seen lots of like World War II movies where you get the paratroopers coming down in the old round parachutes. But but this guy opened it up and it was it was it was square. It was a rectangle and he flew it like a wing and he whizzed around and and swooped and and dove and and came right over us and landed right on target. And I thought that was just the coolest thing in the world. I want to do that. So with my industrious kid brain, I would try making my parachutes <laughs> and I would climb to the highest spot that I thought I might survive <laughs> jumping from and I would try and most of the time it worked out okay. <laughs> I survived. So, so this was a, a, a childhood dream and like a lot of kids I had that childhood dream of flight but with me it stuck. So fast forward to the 90s and I'm a young adult now and uh, I'm, I'm working on my doctorate. I'm in grad school, so I'm pretty busy. But I thought, you know, I really want to learn how to skydive. I mean, not just do like a bucket list, you know, tandem jump. And, and you know, back in the 90s, tandem jumps were still new. And, and you know, because they'd been invented in the 80s. And, they, and so they weren't really a thing yet at that time. So I wanted to take the training and learn how to be a skydiver. So I found a drop zone, and uh, I took the training, and I got a handful of jumps in, and, you know, it's, it's terrifying. I mean, just, you know, right down to uh, this, uh, this fear of heights is a primal fear. We've, we've had it since long before we've been human because you impact on the ground, and it hurts. And you impact from enough distance up, and it doesn't really have to be that high, and you can get seriously damaged or killed. So there's nothing natural about jumping out of a perfectly good airplane. Uh, but, but it was something that I really wanted to do. And then, you know, a lot of life got in the way. It takes a lot of time to finish a doctorate, and, and then there was a family and career and, you know, kids and... Then there was MS, and month by month, year by year, that, that dream of flight just kind of got pushed further and further away. And as my body started failing me in different ways, you know, I, I wondered whether it would be possible for me to come back. I don't have the best control of my legs all the time. On the ground, I'm pretty clumsy sometimes. Uh, and, uh, you know, there, there are a lot of things, you know, with MS, probably the very first thing almost all of us have been told when we were diagnosed with MS is stay away from stress. Because stress tends to cause exacerbations. It makes our, our symptoms flare up. So, uh, you know, that was, uh, 
That was a big issue because stress is an inherent part of jumping out of airplanes. Uh, you, it happens every time you come to the door. Now, you know, you, you get to deal with it differently and you don't experience it as fear, but it's still happening. And we'll talk about this as we go. Um, but so I really wondered, you know, is this this childhood dream that I'd had just enough of that I knew that on the other side of that fear is this amazing kind of joy. And I didn't know whether I was going to be able to get back to it. And in my mind, this became emblematic of all of those things that were slipping away in my life. All of those things that I wanted to do with my life, but now I was dealing with pain and fear and distress and fatigue and wonky neural signals, and, and I didn't know, you know, if this was going to happen. So, you know, then when my kids were, were a little older, my son was about 12 or 13, one day he said to me, Dad, you know you really suck at doing things for yourself. And that really resonated with me because here I am, you know, I'm, I'm ostensibly an expert on people. I, I got a Ph.D. in people and and I advise people all the time to take care of themselves and do things for themselves and and practice self-care. But I knew that he's kind of right. I, I, I tend to let care for myself go by the wayside, and I get focused on other people and other things. And so this stood in the back of my head for a while. And finally, in 2019, I decided I am going to make skydiving a priority in my life. I'm going to go back, and I'm going to get licensed, and I'm going to get, you know, I knew, I, you know, I'm a middle-aged guy with a neurodegenerative condition. I'm not going to be a great skydiver, but I can, you know, be as good as I can be at it. And so, uh, you know, I'm not going to join the Red Bull team, but uh, I'm, 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 you know, I thought, okay, I'm going to do this. So, so I knew coming back that, you know, what was going to be required. And, uh, you know, normally it takes about 25 jumps to earn your A license. And, you know, I knew that I was going to have to work a lot harder than most because my body doesn't always do what I tell it to do. And uh, I, my neural signals are weird. Sometimes I, I think a limb is in one place and it's not. Sometimes it's numb, sometimes it's pain, sometimes, you know, it's just weird signals. Well, by the time I finally got licensed, I had 47 jumps, almost twice what it normally takes. Now, I'd had, you know, a handful of jumps before, and then it took me 34 jumps this last time to finally get everything checked off, because there's like 150 skills that you have to have checked off on you know, the, your A license ref card whenever you, you get that first license. 
So it took hours and hours of extra dirt diving. That's where you practice it and you learn, you know, on the ground. It took hours and hours of extra tunnel time. I had to learn to decipher those sketchy signals. I had to learn when to ground myself when I knew my body wasn't going to be up to this because, you know, skydiving is something that, you know, if you, if you make a mistake, it can be kind of catastrophic. So... I had to build that new capacity, build that currency, keep my abilities sharp. And my point here is, and we're going to talk about this as we come from the other side of this break, that our dreams can come back around. And sometimes they come back around in a different form. And we have to learn to accommodate our illness. Uh, but we don't have to give up. And that's the important thing. So we'll pick up there in just a minute. We all have challenges. Mine is multiple sclerosis. We each have this one life. And we didn't choose to be saddled with chronic illness. But there's a better way. So I choose to just jump. And you can too. It's your life. Live it well. Justjump.life And we're back. And we are in the midst of me struggling, learning to become a skydiver. And... This is a this is a really important thing for me because okay so you know don't get me wrong there is no practical reason to jump out of an airplane there just isn't there's a, you know unless you're in a a really narrow swath of military careers there there's just no reason to do it we do it. Uh, for all kinds of reasons. Some people do it because they think it's cool. Some people do it because they think it's a rush. I do it because, <laughs> and no joke here, it is the most peaceful, relaxing thing I can imagine. <laughs> My producer's given me a look. But But it is... It is amazing. And so I was willing to go through all of this to get back to that place. So I decided to dedicate myself to becoming a skydiver and, and being able to legitimately say, yeah, I'm a skydiver. So I came back in the summer of 2019 in a little over a year and a half I logged over 500 jumps, 370 jumps in 2020 alone, so better than one a day on average. Now, why did I do that? Because 500 jumps in skydiving is kind of a magic number. 500 jumps means that you're qualified for the highest level of licensing in the sport, a D license. It means that you are qualified to uh, 
train for instructional ratings, um, you know, and, and I got a coach rating along the way. Uh, I, I have no desire to be an, a f uh, you know, an AFF instructor or a tandem instructor, but, you know, I can do that. You are qualified then at that point to go for your pro rating so you can land in stadiums, and, and that's the next thing I'm working on now. You know, over the next couple of years, I'm going to be qualified to do stadium jumps. And I, I think that's really cool. So this is not just a childhood dream. It's, it's a dream with goals in it, right? It's a, it's a, it's a dream that, that pushes me in other directions. It's because it's a physical activity. And physical activities are not my strong suit <laughs> anymore, you know? I, I'm, I'm kind of a brain guy. I like to sit around and read and, and write and work on data and things like that. And, and so this was pushing me out of my comfort zone, forcing me to grow in a lot of different ways. And one of the most important things that we could do, I mean, every well-meaning neurologist who tells their patients avoid stress needs to be slapped. Life is full of stress. The correct advice is learn some different strategies to manage stress. So we'll get back to that. But, you know, for me, there's this unspoken tragedy to life with a chronic illness here that we don't talk about it enough. And that is our illness comes to take over our lives and crowd out all of the stuff that brings us joy, that makes us happy, that, that gives color and flavor and texture to our lives. And that's what skydiving does for me. It, it's a lot of texture. <laughs> and, and by doing that, chronic illness robs us of hope. You know, it, it robs us of this idea that there will be more good days to look forward to. So for me, coming back and becoming a skydiver, somebody that I can say, yeah, I am a skydiver, not, you know, not just somebody who jumps out of planes occasionally. For me, that was about building a new sense of hope in my life. Because I'll tell you right now, I mean, I, you know, I still live with this fear that every time my symptoms take a turn for, a wor for the worst, they're not going to take a, a turn for the better again. And that's something that, that we all live with, with our chronic illnesses. And someday, I might not be able to walk anymore. And, and so I already keep track of, you know, there are a handful of adaptive athletes who skydive. 
And so I keep track of the new braces and wheelchairs and techniques that, that people use to skydive when their mobility is limited. And there are some out there. And, and I've got them all bookmarked. I keep track of them. And maybe sometime we'll have one of them on the show here. Uh, so that's the important thing. Now, I don't expect you to jump out of perfectly good airplanes unless you want to. And if you do, hit me up. You know, we'll go jump. But I do expect that you've had some dreams, some hopes, some experiences that you've wanted out of life that you've put on the back burner or maybe even said goodbye to because of your chronic illness. Maybe they are things that you can't do, but maybe they're things that if you're creative about it, you can. Maybe there's something similar to that experience that you can find. Maybe there's some new thing out there that you've never even entertained before that's going to provide that joy and that hope. My point is, I understand because I felt like my life and my possibilities were closing in on me. And it's, it's really easy to get into that position. So if I can jump out of a plane, if I can skydive and do it a lot, I mean, 370 jumps in one year is, is a lot of skydives by almost anyone's standards. I mean, that's, that's you know, a lot. When, when David Blaine last year did that uh, big YouTube jump that, that he did, he did, he managed to, to, uh, to do about 400 skydives in a little over a year uh, to prepare for that. I did 500 in a year and a half. So you can achieve at levels that you probably don't give yourself credit for. Now, I had to start really slow, and I had to build up that capacity because I was a long way from being able to do that. And I had a lot of failures, and I had a lot of setbacks, and... That's okay. You know, there were some days where, where the weather was really bad and it was exacerbating my symptoms, and so I sat on the ground there at the drop zone watching all my friends do their thing because I just wasn't up for it that day. But the next day I was. So the thing that I want you to take out of this segment is that one of the sneakiest things chronic illness does is it robs us of hope and trust in ourselves and in joyful experiences that we want to take from life. And you don't have to accept that. It may take a little creativity, but we can figure it out. 
after the break, we're going to talk a little bit more about fear and the edge in skydiving. I'm Dr. Kevin Payne. Just jump with me into your life lived well. Half of us now live with chronic illness. Mine is multiple sclerosis. It's your life. Live it well. A chronic diagnosis doesn't mean goodbye to the good life you wanted. You don't have to feel overwhelmed or hopeless. I'll show you how to save yourself. Take your first step at justjump.life. And we're back. And if you will recall in our story, <laughs> I was jumping out of perfectly good airplanes. And one of the reasons why I went back and did that was, yeah, we're reclaiming that, that sense of joy and that childhood dream. And there was another reason, and, and this one's going to sound a little wacky here, so bear with me. And that is... I wanted to become really, really good operating in the face of fear. Now, skydiving is an obvious edge activity. It is, it is out there on the edge. And when you stick your head out of an airplane, you know, for the first time. And sometimes it's really funny with, you know, new students. Sometimes it'll be kind of coaxing people toward the door because, you know, no, we, can, we don't push them out. That's not allowed. You have to choose. <laughs> you have to choose to do it. When you stick your head out of the plane, your little primal brain turns itself up to 11. What do you think you're doing? You're not going to jump out of the... You know, because it makes no sense whatsoever, right? And and it's terrified. It's called... There's a technical term for it here. It's called an amygdala hijacking, okay? Because that that little tiny primal fear center in your brain takes everything over. Now... The more you do this, the more you jump out of a plane, it's not fair to say the fear goes away. Okay, so all those people, including Nike, who run around saying, no fear, are idiots. Okay? Fear is useful. Fear is necessary. Fear keeps us alive. But fear is also not very smart. Okay? So, skydiving is a dangerous activity, okay? That can be done safely. Skydiving is a mental sport, and that's one of the things that I like about it, because you have to learn to control and influence yourself and to work and succeed in some pretty extreme circumstances. And that's really kind of cool when you think about it. To it, it, it gives you this big swing in confidence you can carry into the rest of your life. Because you know, yeah, I got this. Right? Every time 
I step out of an airplane every time I jump, every time I'm hanging off the side of an airplane ready to let go, in the back of my head, I think 82 seconds. Because we generally go out at 14,000 feet. At 14,000 feet, on average, you will splat on the ground in 82 seconds. Unless you do something really right. So I think 82 seconds. That is my life expectancy if I don't do something really right. Now, on the other side of this, it's actually a really safe sport. It's just unforgiving of doing stupid things. So when I jump, like, like all sport parachutists, we have two parachutes. We have, we have a main and a reserve. The reserve is, is packed by an FAA-approved uh, rigor, and it's sealed. And we have an AAD, which is an automatic activation device. So if we're going too fast, real low, it'll automatically open our reserve parachute. So, I, you know, we've got all kinds of things going on. I've got something on my rig called a skyhook that gets the reserve parachute out in about a second, a little less than a second. So, I'm boom. so you know, my, my point here is that the risk of doing a skydive is seven micromorts, maybe a little less now. Now, what's a micromort? A micromort is this actuarial number that we use. It's how many, it's, so one micromort is a one in a million chance of dying. So seven micromorts means that you've got about a seven in a million chance of dying on one skydive. That's equivalent to about 50 miles on a motorcycle on the road. You know, in the, in the last few years, every year in the United States, there have been over three and a half million skydives a year and, you know, around 30 or fewer deaths. So it's, it's really safe statistically. And, and our, our forebrains understand that. But our amygdala in our, the base of our brain is hijacking everything. <coughs> right? This is terrifying. So I wanted to get really good at operating in the face of fear. So doing formations, doing acrobatics, you know, having fun. Because we don't just, you know, jump and just fall to earth. We do stuff. And, and that was the important thing. But, you know, as I said, fear is useful and necessary, but it's not smart. And the reason why that is, is our fear mechanisms are really, really old. Really old. And what do they do? They're adapted for a really specific kind of danger. So when that kicks in, we've got our sympathetic nervous system that, that is running the show. And it dilates our pupils, it inhibits our saliva, 
because we need to see lots of stuff and, and take in movement and we're not going to be eating. And it increases our heartbeat and relaxes our airways and it inhibits our stomach because we're not going to be digesting. We need all this energy to save our lives, right? And, and you know, it, it does lots of other things like that. So it, it floods our body with hormones, that, you know, with, with epinephrine and norepinephrine, you know, the, the precursors to adrenaline, right? And, and we, are, we are amped up. And that's really great if you've got a saber-toothed tiger rough, rumbling around in the brush. But that's not the kind of, of challenge of fear that we all face right now. And it doesn't just do those things. It, it also changes the way we think when we're fearful. And this is the most insidious part of it. Because our amygdala, that basal part of our brain, blocks our forebrain. We literally can't think logically. We're, we're thinking emotionally, right? We're not even consciously directing the show. Everything that's happening is is working through our, 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 those really ancient brain systems that, that happen before we even notice that it's happened. So here's why I care about this. Because I, like every single one of my friends out there with chronic and persistent illnesses, I have the thing that I fear most in this world dropped inside my body with me. And I can't get away from it. The thing that terrifies me most in this world is what my MS will do to me. And I can't get away. That's lasting and repeated trauma. And our systems weren't built for that. So I decided that as a social and behavioral scientist, yeah, I'm an expert on fear and what it does to us. You know, all the book learning, I got it. But the knowledge isn't the same as the understanding of living it. So in jumping out of a plane time after time after time after time after time, I'm forcing myself to understand that fear response and manage that fear response and operate well through that fear response. Okay, now, that may be a crazy extreme way to do this, but, but it achieved the goal, right? So, don't wonder if you're afraid. It's natural to be afraid of a chronic illness. A chronic illness is not the kind of fear that we can get away from. We can't outrun it. We take it with us. 
And other people around you will probably not understand that kind of fear. Maybe you can listen to this with them and and have a conversation about that. And I hope many of you do. But for me, this was my kind of extreme, sort of radical way of becoming really, really comfortable in the face of a fear that I have to operate through. Because now, even though my most awful alternative is something I carry around with me, I got this. And you can learn to do this too. And you'll have it as well. So, after the break, we'll talk about a few things that we can do and some practical takeaways out of all this craziness. We all have challenges. Mine is multiple sclerosis. We each have this one life. And we didn't choose to be saddled with chronic illness. But there's a better way. So I choose to just jump. And you can too. It's your life. Live it well. Justjump.life So we've been jumping out of planes here for this episode, and, and, and again, you know, I'm not encouraging any of you to do that unless you want to, and if you do, come on out and do it. I mean, in all seriousness, you know, I, I know people uh, in their 70s who are regular skydivers, licensed and everything, I, guys I jump with all the time. I've, I know people in their 80s and 90s or or you know, maybe younger with, with uh, you know, significant physical disabilities who have done tandem skydives and enjoyed it, you know, and had a great time with it. So if it's a bucket list item for you, then definitely do it. If you think you would never want to do it under any circumstances, then go with your gut, okay? <laughs> so... This is this this is okay either way. You you know, just do what you want. Now, by way of tying all this up here, I I want to introduce a concept to you I call the edge. And it's so important that it's chapter 4 of my book. So, uh, this is this is really important. So think about this for a second. The edge is a ratio. Okay? So, it's a relationship between what a circumstance is demanding of you, on the one hand, and the capacity you have in that moment to deliver. Okay? So the edge, you know, sometimes if sometimes our capacity is way up high, and, and what is demanded of us in the moment is really low. And so we're feeling good. We, we have a great time of it. We're successful. Uh, life seems easy. Sometimes what we've got is a really big demand in front of us and we don't have as much capacity that we can deliver. And that's when we're overwhelmed, right? So when we feel fear, 
Fear is an anticipation of pain or a negative event. Okay? So it's, it's not quite as old as pain and pleasure. It's a little bit newer than that. But it's still really, really ancient. Because emotions... You ever wonder why we have emotions? Ever think about it? Why do we have emotions? Well, the reason why we have emotions is emotions are movers. They're motivators. They push us in the direction of some things and, and away from others. And they do it in various ways. Well, fear is one of our oldest. And it not only has all those biological aspects to it, you know, changing our physiology and the way our body's operating and the way we're thinking, but it's pushing us. It's, it's anticipating, oh, something bad is going to happen there. What is it anticipating? It's anticipating that de- the demand is going to be more than your capacity to deliver, and you're going to fail, and that may cause some kind of pain in the process. That's all fear actually is. It's a warning that you don't think you are capable of generating a good outcome out of the demand of this task in front of you. That's fear. So, that's an edge experience. Now, here's the funny thing about it. When you approach that edge when your capacity is just a little bit more than what the circumstance demands. That's what some researchers call a flow experience. You know when you're operating at your very best and everything just seems kind of natural and, and it, it's just this, this kind of amazing experience. It's like, wow, I'm really succeeding. And, and part of you is... is in the flow of the moment and and experiencing it and loving it and then there's also a little part of you that's kind of observing it's like wow how cool am i (laughs) you know right well that's at the edge but you go just a little bit on the other side of the edge and now suddenly the demand is just a little bit more than what you can deliver so My point here is most of those really great life experiences that we have are on one side of the edge. And most of those really bad life experiences that we have are right on the other. And if we pull ourselves back from the possibility of failure, then we pull ourselves back from the possibility of those joyous successes. And I don't know about you, but, you know, after I've been plummeting to the earth for 60 or 70 seconds, and I I give my wave off, and I deploy that parachute, and it blossoms over me, and I know, hey, I'm going to survive. That is one of the coolest emotional feelings you will ever have. You're like, wow, okay, I'm going to survive to do this again. It is, it is cathartic. It is, it is, because, and that's the cool thing. See, when you skydive, you, it's this great emotional cocktail, right? So it's this hormonal cocktail. You get the adrenaline, and then you get a dopamine and serotonin chaser. Whew. How great is that? But 
my point here is this is an obvious edge, right? Skydiving, that's an obvious edge. But edges are everywhere. Edges are everywhere. And it could be something that, that cognitively you're up for, but if you can't physically deliver the behavior, or if socially there are barriers in place, or if emotionally it's difficult for you, you, you your success can be blocked at any of those stages, right? So to, so to have that successful behavior, it has to go through all of those gates. And that can be really frustrating for those of us with chronic illness because we can think to ourselves, you know, this is something I've done a million times before and I just can't get my hands to operate. And that's really frustrating because cognitively it's not at the edge for you. But physically, it may be in that moment. And I know that's really, you know, it's really tough for me because sometimes I'll wake up in the morning and I will, I have, maybe this will be an episode sometime, but I have like a massive amount of vitamins and supplements and medicines that I take in the morning. And sometimes in the morning, I, I can't get my hands to pick them up. It hasn't started yet. So this really, really simple thing becomes almost overwhelming. And it can become an emotional experience. So I have to learn to back off and, and you know, maybe scoot the pills over to the edge of the counter and slide them into a cupped hand and, and so forth. But my, my point here is... My point here is that, yeah, I may have an edge that's way out further than most people with jumping out of airplanes, but a lot of my edges are really in and close and common. You know, some days I stress out about driving because that's something I love to do. I mean, you know, when I was younger, I would love long drives in the open road, roll down the window, turn up the radio, and, and you know, have a great time. But I find it stressful now because driving is cognitively demanding. You've got you've to be on all the time. And, and sometimes when I don't have a lot of resources in a particular day, something that I would otherwise find joyful is something that I find stressful and try to avoid. You know, I love people. And, and you know, sometimes people th say I'm even halfway decent to be around themselves, you know. But, but I, I love people, but, but, again, dealing with people can be cognitively and emotionally demanding. And sometimes I don't feel like I have the resources to deliver for those things. So, my point is, recognize the edge. And when you feel fear, when you feel anger or negativity or reluctance to engage in something, stop and really dissect what you're responding to. Because those are fear responses. And fear is just telling you, you don't think you have the capacity to successfully deliver what might be demanded of you. And if you can think about it in those terms, and just that the fear response is a really ancient, 
overreaction to the kinds of of challenges we normally face day in and day out in the world we've created for ourselves, then you can start dissecting it and being creative about it and thinking about alternate ways so that you can feel like you do have the capacity to deliver for that moment that you want to experience. And so for me, you know, that played out at 120, 150, 180 miles an hour up in the sky learning to skydive. But it also plays out for me day in and day out when I have a difficult time picking up my pills or, uh, you know, am stressed that I'm going to have enough energy to drive home after an event or any of a number of really ordinary, really boring daily things. So look for the edges in your life. And if you want to come jump out of a plane, uh, hit me up and we'll jump. But the most important thing is you can still find ways to reclaim your dreams and your joy in your own lives. So, until next time, go forth, be well, do well, and do good. If you've enjoyed today's topic and want to join the conversation with Dr. Kevin Payne, find Your Life Lived Well on all of your favorite social media sites, Patreon, and of course, yourlifelivedwell.co. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe.